0: This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London, dedicated to improving research and supporting families because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform.
1: This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 98 getting close to the centennial. This is being recorded on July 21st, 2022. I'm your co-host without a co-host today. I'm the only host, Tim Kripp from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University as our guest well knows. I'm pleased that we have Dr. Jonathan Finley with us today to discuss his long and distinguished career and get all of his important insights for anyone listening. So, welcome, Jonathan. Delighted to be here, Tim. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I'm going to read just a quick uh, overview of some of your uh, most uh, highest level accolades here. I'm, you know, so that you don't have to toot your own horn. And um, rather than reading your, you know, three part, uh, you know, hundred page um, CV, I'll just summarize it for our listeners. Uh, you were trained in Birmingham. Uh, at Birmingham University and, and it, for your uh, MB, CHB, your medical degree, as well as pediatric residency. Then you did some uh, fellowship training. Wait, in, that's
0: England, not Atlanta. That's,
1: that's true. That's England. Yes. I mean, Alabama, not Alabama. Alabama. Right. They can. I'm sure they'll get that from your accent. But uh, then you trained in pediatric immunology, as well as pediatric hematology, oncology, in a fellowship at University of Wisconsin at Madison, where I also was at a little bit after you. Um, And then you've been on faculty at a lot of different places, Stanford, back to University of Wisconsin in Madison, Memorial Sloan Kettering and Cornell, NYU, CHLA, uh, most recently Nationwide Children's, where I am, uh, and now you're an independent contractor living in Southern California. Is that that about right for the
0: official history? We prefer to call ourselves in Central California, not Southern California. California.
1: Well, it always seems sunny when I talk to you. So Um, you have uh, received a number of awards, uh, awards from the Society of Neuro-Oncology, Award for Excellence in 2001 and 2012, a Society of Neuro-Oncology of Latin America International Pediatric Oncology Award in 2016, Society of Neuro-Oncology Lifetime Achievement Award in 2019, and most recently in 2022, this year, the International Society of Pediatric Neuro-Oncology Lifetime Achievement Award. So congratulations on all those, those honors, well-deserved. You have listed over 350 publications, over 380 invited lectures, and have trained over 130 students uh, so far. So uh, lots, of, lots of fantastic work over many, many years. So congratulations on all that. So we're, we're very pleased to have someone of such prominence as a guest. And of course, it was my pleasure to work with you over the last, what, five or so years here while you were running our brain tumor program and such a delight to to a person to work with. And so, you know, I really want our audience to sort of get a sense of who you are and and what your thoughts are as we go through this conversation today, but maybe just start off by telling us... I. I I know from personal experience, you could regale us with stories for many, many hours, but maybe just tell us how you got into taking care of kids with
0: brain cancer. Okay. Well, if I can preface it with a little bit about what led me into pediatric cancer in general, pediatric immunology, uh, cellular immunology, I probably have to go back to my final year in medical school, where I undertook a four month elective at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm uh, in the laboratory of tumor biology uh, of George Klein. The interests there were Burkitt's lymphoma. The interests there were more fundamental cellular immunology. And in fact, it was a laboratory of cellular immunology that I was working in. And there was this terrific guy who was also visiting from the United States, far more senior than me, who came from Robert Good's group in Minnesota and who kept talking and presenting all the time about the wonderful new world of bone marrow transplantation for immune deficiency disorders. And we talked about where that might eventually be able to apply to other kinds of diseases like cancers, like leukemias, and basically that whole, um, if you like, trio of clinical uh, and translational and more fundamental immunology like issues that I that I encountered as a final year medical student at the Karolinska really helped formulate um, that I wanted to be a translational researcher at some point in the future. So that's certainly what led me into pediatric on, uh, oncology, immunology, why I undertook immunology fellowship before oncology. How did I get into brain tumors? I have to tell this story. I actually, my fellowship with, as you know, Nasrallah Shahidi in Wisconsin, who is a very strong experimental hematologist, and you follow the, you know, under the guidance of your, of your boss, I was looking at T cell regulation of erythropoiesis in hypoproliferative anemias, um, congenital acquired. And in fact, it was on the basis of that work that I got recruited to Stanford for my first faculty position in 1980. And when I walked through the door there, Michael Link, who many of you will know, is a foremost pediatric oncologist and the only, to date, a a pediatric president of ASCO. uh, He said to me, well, Jonathan, we like to divide all the different diseases amongst us. And since you're the most junior guy on the block here, I'm afraid you're going to get the disease that nobody else wants. So I got brain tumors. And basically, I realized that finley if you want to make a mark in life you can do no worse than choose a disease where virtually everybody dies at that point and the small number of survivors were indeed a very pyrrhic victory because of that extremely poor quality of life and nobody seemed to be interested nationally in what to do about these kids so that frankly was the birth of my interest back in 1980 81 82 in childhood brain tumors, and it's persisted and grew and developed ever since.
1: I mean, it's a great story, and it tells you, it tells trainees and students uh, how uh, serendipity and timing, and you know, maybe side conversations in the hallway may may have a profound impact on your future. I mean, that's a very difficult career, as you pointed out. Those are uh, these patients have a lot of challenges, uh, very difficult treatments, um, not great track records, although. They've gotten better over the years, much in thanks and in, in part substantially due to your, your work. So tell us, tell us how the field has evolved. What was it like compared what it was like then to what it's like now to take care of these patients?
0: Well, it was extremely difficult back then. I can remember, in fact, before I came to the United States for my fellowship, I actually spent six months at the Christie Hospital in Manchester um, doing a pediatric um, oncology Rotation And Friday morning was the brain tumor clinic where I had to drive to the other side of the city to the Manchester Children's Hospital for the brain tumor clinic. And I had real trouble every Friday morning getting out of bed, not because it was a, a long drive to the other side of the city in my uh, jalopy um, Morris Minor thousand uh, car that was falling apart, but because it was so so sad and depressing. All we were doing was struggling to find veins on these poor children who are incredibly Cushingoid from their corticosteroids in order to give them shots of Vincristin, uh, shots of uh, BCNU, and that's all we could do, and they were all going to be dying anyway. It was very, very sad, very depressing. And as I said, when I got to Stanford, uh, nothing much had changed between 1976 and 1980. Most of the children were dying, and those that didn't, those that made it through, had been, or even for low-grade gliomas, we were seeing a penchant for radiating them right up front. They can, their quality of survival for those that did survive was very poor, and there was very little, if any, attention being paid to growth, development, intellectual functioning, endocrine functioning, any of that in the small cohort of survivors. We are in a totally different scenario now. We have grown out of the dark ages, and I'm actually (laughs) writing on that. And somehow, don't hold me to it, but 1985 is sort of the end of the dark ages and the beginning of what I call the age of empiricism, where simply with empirical reasoning, we began both in this country uh, as well as in Europe to develop chemotherapy, introduce chemotherapy strategies along with full-dose radiation initially, then with reduced dose for certain tumors like medulloblastoma, and ultimately, avoidance of radiation therapy. But all of it empirically based with very little understanding of the science. The incredibly exciting stuff is that over the last 10 to 15 years, we're emerging from the age of empiricism. We haven't totally emerged from it yet, but our un- increasing understanding of the biology underpinning so many of these brain tumors, um, yes, has already impacted significantly in med- medulloblastoma, is still only just beginning uh, to impact upon um, high-grade gliomas. I mean, I should also say absolutely impacting in low-grade gliomas. It's changing the whole field, and it's, that's one of the things our our understanding of the biology of these tumors that is allowing us uh, not only to tailor therapies and stratify therapies, but also begin to talk about targeting therapies against some of the um, aberrations that we can identify. So that's one aspect that has made the field so exciting and that continues to keep me excited uh, in this field and, and be involved in it at least i uh, love to follow the literature and see all the new stuff that's coming out, uh, as well as see the exciting new things being offered. I
1: mean, what you've said gives us all hope and gives the patients hope, I think. What are some of the most exciting technologies and strategies uh, that you're looking forward to watching?
0: Right. Well, you know, as you mentioned, I started life off very much as an immunologist, uh, as a cellular therapist. Actually, my undergraduate work was in immunochemistry rather than cellular therapy. But it's like I feel the wheel has come full circle for me because more and more I, um, I, I'm seeing the um, growth uh, in, in many different cancers, as we know, of immunotherapeutic strategies that are really very exciting. Now, we have to be a little careful as we look at solid tumors because maybe some of the progress when we talk about bite, uh, bispecific T-cell-engager antibody therapies or CAR T-cell chimeric antigen receptor, uh, T-cell therapies, and the, the great successes there, as we know, have been in childhood leukemia, uh, lymphoma of children and adults, and now more recently in multiple myeloma. Um, we've yet to see those translated into more solid tumors. But I'm very hopeful that if we can address, and I know there's a lot of people looking at this uh, and beginning to understand the microenvironment that surrounds our solid tumors, be it macrophages that inhibit uh, immunotherapeutic strategies or certain T-cell subsets that do that. If we can overcome those things, then our our lymphocytes that certainly get into the, for example, the brain, let alone other solid tumors, uh, will not be uh, neutralized, shall we say, by the tumor milieu. So that's a big That's a big, exciting future, but also some uh, potential uh, significant inhibitory factors at the moment. On the other hand, when we think about diseases like medulloblastoma, where a significant problem is leptomeningeal disease, I think about spread through the cerebrospinal fluid, uh, somewhat the way a leukemia person thinks about spread uh, through the meninges as well, but also through the the uh, uh, peripheral blood circulation and there we may actually have a significant role for um, antibody and um uh, cellular immunotherapies for eliminating the leptomeningeal dissemination uh, of these tumors and contributing in that way towards improved control and minimization of radiation therapy to the whole brain and, and spinal So I think those are very exciting years, And I've not even touched upon your own area of expertise, which is viral immunotherapeutic strategies for tackling cancers of various sorts. It's an incredibly exciting arena between our understanding of the biology of these tumors, identifying potential targets, and the expansion of our understanding of immunotherapeutic strategies. It's just very exciting.
1: Yes, uh, I agree. And I have a lot of hope for the future. Um, what do you think are some of the challenges that remain in terms of making progress? Uh, not just from the biologic understanding and implementing new therapies, but you know traditionally things have been very slow to come about. And well, I don't know what what are some of the highlighted challenges you know that okay. you would say.
0: Well, we're, we're talking about rare diseases. All our childhood cancers are essentially rare when compared with uh, the big adults. Tumors, uh, be it uh, lung cancer, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, we have this problem. And in fact, in many ways, that's been part of our success because it's forces, not because we're all great democratic socialists. But the only way we could actually um, make any headway was by working together at the national level through our initially pediatric oncology group and children's oncology group. And uh, over the last 20 years, a combined Unified National POG CCG, the Children's Oncology Group. More and more, we need to be doing things internationally, and we saw that in the 90s already, in 2000s, in childhood lymphoma studies, in Wilms tumor studies. I think in some Ewing's, I'm not certain about that, but we're beginning to see it now, and I'm delighted to be a part of a, a process that Nationwide Children's Hospital is going to be uh, the North American leader in. Um, in our international good risk preschool medulloblastoma trial that basically is going to be uh, North America, much of Europe, Australia, and it's gonna be a very exciting study because it's only with the power of those patient numbers that we can truly address the kind of randomized studies that are crucial ultimately for determining which are the best therapies, both both in terms of efficacy and also crucial for our children with brain tumors, which are the least toxic over the long term and, pre- and which preserve our quality of lives. So that's a challenge, but at the same time, a tremendous opportunity. I think we really need to be looking uh, much more internationally. And it's hard. It requires you ask what are the other challenges? You've got to get funding for this kind of stuff. The NCI is, you know, doesn't have the funds and doesn't prioritize it high enough Philanthropy only goes so far, and these are difficult economic times, especially through COVID. I think there's been a lot of a drop-off in philanthropic support for all kinds of reasons From that. These are the ongoing challenges. But I think the opportunity of working together, especially in this age where communication through the internet, through virtual communications has become, has, has made such communication collaboration much easier. Certainly, we've seen that in in the development of our international medulloblastoma study with uh, weekly, if not monthly, or monthly, if not weekly meetings, Zoom conferences and the like, uh, where we all get together. I mean, this has really facilitated our ability to do that. We don't have to wait till we get into the same room twice a year at a conference to be able to thrash out these kind of issues. So that has certainly improved things as well clearly there are big problems that remain, whether we're talking about childhood brain cancer or any of the other cancers that we have to deal with.
1: Oh, it's good to know that at least one good thing came out of COVID, this whole ability to communicate better virtually. Uh, you make right. a great case for, for teamwork. Are there, speaking of philanthropy, maybe other than philanthropy, are there ways that you have felt uh, parents or survivor advocates have impacted your work along the way and, and in what ways?
0: Well, from a very personal perspective, um, there is no question that I, my whole trajectory has been, over the decades, has been influenced by the patients that I had uh, in the early days. Uh, for example, when we were first exploring the potential of marrow ablative chemotherapy with uh, marrow rescue, um, who are the patients that would go, who are the parents that would bring their children for these? highly experimental, uh, innovative therapies about which we knew nothing. We had no concept of treating people in minimal residual disease. We had no concept about required uh, organ function at that time. And the morbidities and indeed the mortalities were very substantial. One could never thank sufficiently the trust and the faith that parents placed in us to try to uh, overcome terrible situations that they found themselves and their children and in, in those days. Yes, there's, we had, even in the early days, great successes. And there's no question that the successes always help to stir you um, forward uh, in your goals. But in many ways, I would say personally, it was the failures that drove me more to persist in trying to improve therapies, Decrease the toxicities, improve the efficacy over the years. uh, And we've certainly been able to do that. So that's a very personal perspective. I can tell you that, for example, uh, and I think we're seeing this increasingly, the involvement of parent advocates in from the very beginning of the development and construct of our clinical trials, I consider very important. And we have done this, for example, in our international um, uh, medulloblastoma. Uh, trial. We have uh, parent advocates that are involved with us uh, on both sides of the ocean. and I think their role is very important to hear from them um, to make sure we don't go off the deep end uh, and are asking questions that are relevant uh, and important to families um, and their children. Um, So that's just a couple of ways in which it's impacted with me, but without it for me, but the personal perspective, I... I don't think I could have, I mean, there's no way I could have done this without the stimulus, good and bad, difficult and successful from all the patients that I've had the honor and privilege of, of, of managing and being involved with their care over so many decades.
1: You know, con- continuing along the personal perspective theme, I don't think I'm sharing anything you wouldn't want me to because you've written about it, but you're a twice a twice cancer survivor. How has your experience as a patient influenced your uh, behavior as a physician?
0: (laughs) Uh, You you might ask the question the other way around as well. How has my experience as a physician influenced my behavior as a patient? Yes. And uh, one of my colleagues said to me, because I'm heading for CAR T-cell therapy in New York after having undergone a second autologous bone marrow transplant, and a very wise senior colleague of mine said to me, Jonathan, are you sure that your selection of treatment options for yourself are not being overly uh, influenced by our own personal experiences and biases? And I said to him, goodness, of course they are. Yeah. What else yeah. is bias if it's not based upon experience and expertise? You know, and, and why would I want not to do for myself what I haven't done generations of children, admittedly there's a big age difference, of children who I've put through um, consolidated marrow ablative chemotherapy regimens for decades before me. And after all, here I am four years into my uh, multiple myeloma therapy, and I'm feeling the best I've been in four years, and I'm in the most minimal disease I've been in four years. So I can't complain that my uh, strategy that I've uh, developed, along with some outstanding myeloma specialists... Um, in this country, in, uh, in uh, Ohio State University, in the City of Hope, um, at Memorial Sloan Catering, and uh, uh, in Spain as well, who have been great advisors and counselors for me over the years. You know, there's no question that what I do has been influ- for myself, has been influenced by my own experiences as an oncologist. But your question, the other way around, is also equally true, because my first bout with cancer. Uh, was when I was 26 years of age and still a resident back in England doing pediatrics and thinking about immunology and oncology. And having developed at that age, uh, metastatic recurrent testicular cancer kind of said to me, Finley, you're probably on the right track wanting to follow a career in cancer and uh, immunology. That was a time when uh, before um, Dr. Einhorn had developed his wonderful uh, chemotherapy regimen for testicular cancer, uh, that was a time when I wasn't expected to survive. And my radiation therapist at the time tried to prepare me for that, which I actually shocked the hell out of me because it um, made me realize those are the kind of conversations one really needs to be having uh, with, with one's patients and families. Um, there was one specific radiation therapist that tackled, sat me down and asked me that. Not most of them, but at least one of them did. I think the important thing is it gave me a sense of optimism, having survived it, of course, uh, that even when you have survived, a disease is only incurable until somebody comes along and makes the effort to cure it. I, I do want to stress, though, how important it is. And it's not just a cliche to say this, but it's very true. And one has to keep reminding oneself and confronting oneself with it whether you are a physician uh, or a patient or uh, either or both, it's one thing to deal with cancer and deal with it aggressively. uh, And there's no question it becomes an important part of one's life, both as a physician, but also as a patient. But you can't let it define your life. You can't let it lead everything you do. And I have a, um, a lot of other interests Uh, that I pursue, Uh, I have a wonderful wife who refuses to allow me to take myself too seriously, Uh, Mm -hmm. and dogs that drive me crazy, and we live in a wonderful countryside where we can appreciate and hike through the nature and and really enjoy living with absolutely nothing to do and no consideration of my own personal cancer uh, in the background or the, the influence of other aspects of cancer as a physician. So I hope that goes a little bit of a way to answer your question there.
1: Yeah, I was, uh, my last question was gonna be, what advice do you have for budding uh, hematology oncology physicians? I think you just gave a lot of great advice, but maybe I will give you the opportunity to you know, pontificate just a little bit more for someone who's just entering the field. Um, based on your experience, right. what would you recommend to them? They keep their eye on the prize.
0: Okay, very easy. We've made tremendous progress in the treatment of what is still the major cause of cancer related death uh, in the developed world and indeed in the world, and indeed the major cause of disease related death um, in North America and, and, and in Western Europe, and that is brain cancer. But we've still got a long, long way to go. So I would say to you what. Dustin Hoffman was told by Mr Robinson i think it was Mr Robinson in the graduate when he pulled him aside at his graduate graduation party and said to him plastics plastics pediatric oncologist brain cancer brain cancer brain cancer we need you in the field there is still a shortage of pediatric oncologists going into neurooncology and what has been disappointing and upsetting to me and many of my colleagues is how many people at the middle to middle senior level are actually leaving pediatric neuro-oncology over the last couple of years to go into industry. Um, There's all kinds of reasons that we can go into that. Uh, The money is better. These are difficult economic times. Um, The competition for funding as a translational researcher versus your PhDs competing for federal funding is very, very hard. You know, lots of reasons. But the point is, we need pediatric oncologists, strong, a good understanding of the biology brain cancers uh, who can develop innovative and creative, uh, be it early phase clinical trials or even more uh, developed, if you like, uh, phase phase two, phase three trials. We, that's where you can make a career for yourself.
1: It's interesting that um, when I was a first year fellow, Steve Salin, who wasn't our fellowship director, but was sort of a co-director, told me the same exact thing <laughs> back in 1990, 80, 1992. So yes, um, we, need, we need more people in the field. But one last question. You have a degree in viticulture. What's your favorite wine?
0: Oh no, that's impossible. It's like asking what's one's favorite movie. Um, it depends on the genre that you're interested. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Pinot Noirs. Uh, I can tell you what my favorite white wine in the world is and that's Caut Charlemagne, which is a white uh, Pinot uh, made out of Pinot Noir from Burgundy. Uh, but other than Courton Charlemagne and Sauternes, which is a, a white dessert wine from France, and, and Krug Champagne from France, I absolutely love. Great powerhouse cabs, uh, Syrahs, Zinfandels, um, great powerhouse Chardonnays, uh, you know, a whole variety and a whole spectrum of them. If I consume my own horn a little bit, we actually, uh, I actually made a Sangiovese, only five gallons worth, which is an, a good Italian grape used for uh, uh, Tuscan wines, uh, um uh, but I planted uh, 10 vines of Pinot Noir, um, and I'm going to try to be innovative again, as usual, to try and make a wine which is a blend There's records anywhere throughout the world of anybody making such a blend. So I want to try and give that a try um, this um, this October, November, December. A lot of fun making wine, it really is.
1: Great stuff. Well, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate our conversation. It's good to see you again
0: delighted to talk with you tim as always it's been a real pleasure a real pleasure and thanks to the team
1: at solving kids cancer a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children remember the more we learn communicate share ideas and work together the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable as always keep up the fight and thanks for listening to this week in pediatric oncology
0: We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsoncdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu and find all Twipo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.